Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Shaking My Head. In today's episode, we're focusing on one of the key part of any other business, that's a legal part of it. So today we have Mr. Ahmed from Cloud Technologies focusing more on how a company should be structured and the basics as a founder of a company owner you should be know about. Let's start with the episode. Let's start with one introduction from Mr. Ahmed and let's go from there. Thank you. Uh, yeah, my name is Ahmed Arif. I'm one of the um, co-founders of uh, Clara. Uh, it's, a, it's a legal tech platform that helps early stage founders um, digitally form their company, manage their cap table, put in place some key startup contracts like ESOP and some um, convertibles, consulting, advisory agreement, that kind of thing, share their profile with investors. Um, my background is as a lawyer, so I did that for 15 years, um, private equity, M&A, and venture capital, working with, with, with startups as well. So Mr. Mehmet, I want to say from the outside, as a business owner, how should you structure your company? Um, yeah, so there's a couple of uh, key bits to, to think about when you're getting started. Um, uh, particularly, uh, let's say this is more important for, for startups or those who are seeking investment from professional investors, finance investors, right? That might, that might be a bit of a different structure than if you're just running the business internally, or maybe if you're getting investors there, friends and family, or strategics, corporates, they're not quite the same thing. But we'll just focus on that first bit. Let's say you're about to start your business, or maybe you've already started, but you're about to take it to the next level and you want to raise funds, or potentially in the future raise funds from, from uh, professional investors. One of the first things that you have to think about is, do I need a holding company separate from the business that actually operates, okay, which we call an operating company? Um, there are a number of reasons for this. Uh, most important amongst them is that uh, you know, professional investors, generally speaking, will only invest through certain limited jurisdictions. They won't invest in a whole bunch of jurisdictions. There are jurisdictions that have a track record in terms of the rights and obligations and investor protections. Um, uh, they have a track record in terms of enforcing these rights specifically, right? Um, efficient court systems, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, they tend to be um, English common law based systems. Um, so that's uh, the US being the, the, the exception. So for the US context, it's Delaware. That's where you'd set up your holding company. Um, although people do use it outside of the US as well. Um, uh, you've got your Caymans, your BVIs, your Singapores, and your classic kind of uh, jurisdictions like that. Um, in the region, it's uh, Abu Dhabi Global Market, ADGM, and it's Dubai International Financial Center, DIFC. Those are sort of, I would say, the acceptable ones for a holding company jurisdiction. Um, the other reason for the split is actually because it's always a good idea to separate the messy business of operating from where the equity sits, where the shareholders sit. Because operations means liabilities. If you're operating, it means you've got customers, you've got suppliers, you've got contracts, you've got employees, and that's where disputes can happen, God forbid, right? It could happen, you had a problem, uh, that's where it's gonna happen. And having that split structure means that um, you will have just a little bit of room. There's limited liability anyway, at both levels, but it's nice just to have a, a company that's clean, that's passive, that all it does is hold shares in your other businesses. Your main business to begin with, and as you branch out to different countries or whatever, you would set up additional subsidiaries all from the same holding company okay so that's broad strokes um i would say the 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 the, the clean investor ready investable structure yeah. right for, for a business owner for startups in particular if they're if they're talking to vcs etc 
Um, yeah, so I think we'll pause there. This is kind of brought to that, and there's, there's obviously a bit of detail behind that, but <laughs> think about whether you need a holding company, and then think about um, um, the jurisdictions, as I mentioned, for the holding company. And then, of course, as for the jurisdictions for where you're uh, operating, I mean, that's up to you, it depends on location, where do you want to have office space, cost of the license, you know, cost of um, uh, the office space. These are these are, are, are much more relevant than the regulations, etc. Because again, you know, that's not where people are going to be investing or it's not even where you're going to hold your shares anymore if you have the holding company structure. And now after structuring, as a business owner, what should be like basic three, four contracts you should have in place before you go to find a new customer or go up to any supplier as well? Before the revenues start to pump in in the company, <laughs> what could be like basic three, four contracts they should be in place to protect your company and yours as well? Sure, sure. Um, I think if you are, if you're developing any, if your business involves the development of technology, if you're, let's say, a tech startup, um, or, or any other sort of valuable IP, then it, one thing to keep in mind is just make sure that um, every single contract you have and every single contractual relationship you have um, either includes in that contract IP assignment provisions, mm -hmm. we'll get to what that means in a sec, or you could separately put in place an IP assignment agreement. Okay. okay what that does is it just confirms that the, 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 the person, which could be an employee, it could be a web developer, right? Mm -hmm. It could be anything, really. Anybody who's touching your business, it's it's a good idea to have that contract or those provisions in place to say, just so they're all clear, just to confirm any of the IP that belongs to my business, my platform, whatever it is you're building, um, uh, that is automatically assigned from the this individual to the company itself. Mm -hmm. That stops them from in the future going and saying, oh, by the way, you know, that website I built you, that's mine, or you have to take this down because I own it, or I can go and do it as well and take the code or take whatever the IP mm -hmm. is. Uh, so it just protects you from, from that, and investors like it as well, because then they see that you will have protected yourself from those eventualities. Mm -hmm. uh, it even applies to the business owners themselves. I mean, you maybe there's more than one of you in the business, right? You've got co-founders, partners. You should all sign one of these as well, just in case one of the partners leaves, one of the founders leaves, then you've got that contract um, to protect the business itself. Mm. So so that's one. Uh, another kind of general one, it, it's, it's not exactly your question, but yeah. just make sure that you do have contracts with everybody you're dealing with, right? Because a lot of people don't, at least to begin with, or they think, oh, this is just a small thing mm. I'm doing. We just agreed over email. Mm. And then if there's obviously any issues, you're, 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 you're going to have a much harder time mm. protecting yourself um, uh, if there isn't a written court contract. So anybody you deal with, paper it somehow, you know, make sure you, even if it's just something very, very quick and simple, make sure you've got a contract in place. Definitely for, obviously, uh, you know, employees, consultants, people who are involved significantly with your business, just put, put some documentation around that. Um, beyond that, I think, uh, again, it's, it's, it's broad because it depends on the type of business, but generally speaking, if you are contracting with the wider world, you should probably have some standard terms and conditions of some sort. If it's an online business, maybe it's just your T's and C's online. Um, it, you know, if you're if you're doing something where you're sending out engagement letters or sending out SOWs, you know, scopes of work, or scope, then you know you can attach some standard terms there, uh, just to do the basics. You know, uh, limitation of liability, where are you going to go for disputes, what law, what courts, that kind of thing. Are you going to use arbitration? Um, 
all that good stuff. Um, uh, I think that, that that's pretty important. Um, this is not strictly, I mean, it is a form of contract, but people don't think of it as a contract, but think about uh, business protection insurance, right? Um, you know, people overlook that, but if you are doing stuff, um, uh, you know, at scale, something's bound to go wrong, it might be worth having some insurance for that. Uh, so that's the type of contract you'll sign with, with, with your insurance company. Um, uh, let's see what else. I mean, if you are, if you're the type of, if, 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 if you're an early stage startup, you probably want to put in place something like um, a founder's agreement between the founders. So we talked about IP, but governance is really important, right? And you've got to be very clear about it from day one. Expectations, roles, time commitments, uh, who sits on the board, what decisions do have to be made unanimously, or what decisions require the approval of a particular party, right? Uh, shares, can you transfer them freely? Do you have to offer them to your existing shareholders first before you can sell them to a third party? Is there a lockup period where you all agree we're not going to sell because we're trying to get this business off the ground or beyond a certain point? Um, there's lots of technical terms, tagalongs, dragalongs. Um, uh, you know, the, the dragalong maybe is important if you if you think you want to sell in the future. What if somebody says no? Do they have the right to block it? Do you all need to say yes? Is there a certain percentage that needs to say yes, right? So you gotta, you know, it's uh, having a business is kind of like a, a, a marriage. We gotta think of the divorce, whether it's a happy one or an unhappy one. You gotta think of the exit plan, essentially. Um, so a governance document of, of some sort, a shareholders agreement, a founders agreement is, is very, very important. Even if you are friends, your family, you get along, that's fine. It doesn't have to be because there's a dispute in the future. It's also just useful to write things down because people forget. Right? I think it keeps you accountable as well. Right? Hey, what's your responsibility look like in this company? Yeah. Exactly. And it flushes out those difficult conversations of yeah. making sure we're aligned uh, in terms of expectation, <laughs> commitment, that kind of thing. Um, uh, so I say that, that that's a pretty, uh, pretty important one to put in place. Um, you know, there are others, of course, but I think if you get, make sure you think about your governance, make sure you're thinking about your liabilities and your standard terms and conditions, make sure you're protecting your IP. If you're an IP heavy business or if the value of your business is, is the value of your IP, uh, I would say those are the key ones. I think, you know, we're diving into context part of it. What are the common mistakes that you have seen across experience that people make, uh, especially early stage founders, mm -hmm. references in terms of legal part of the stuff? Mm -hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, quite, quite, quite a few mistakes. I think it's it's basically the the mirror image of what I just said, right? So they don't sit down and have those conversations with their co-founders if they have co-founders. Um, they don't write everything down, and then you know th there are disputes. They uh, don't think about protecting their IP, and then somebody uh, you know who's involved early on leaves and does a competing venture, or you know tells them to stop doing what they're doing, right? Which kind of which even, even if it's a completely frivolous uh, uh, case without any merit, will scare investors away. Mm -hmm. They'll be like, oh, you know, either the governance thing or the IP thing will scare, scare investors away and then I could kill a business before it's even had a chance to get started, right? Um, uh, in terms of not, I mean, yeah, I'm a little bit biased because, because my background is a lawyer, but honestly not using lawyers enough and in the right time. I, I know it's a big expense. But if you use the right type of lawyer at the right time and you use them efficiently and cleverly, I think the value add there cannot be um, 
underestimated. I mean, I spent a lot of my time when I was advising startups um, just fixing that mess. And it mm. costs more and takes a lot longer to fix than to have done it you know, correctly to begin with. But um, typically that realization only happens uh, after things go wrong. So we see that for second time and more founders, they tend to have uh, uh, better documentation, better contracts, mm -hmm. and they use lawyers earlier on because they're more likely to have burnt and to realize how much worse it is to go back to them later as opposed mm -hmm. to doing it from the beginning. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, just ask, ask other, I would say ask other founders in the ecosystem what, what their experience was, try and get some connections with, you know, lawyers who are a bit more friendly, budget friendly and understand working with earlier stage mm -hmm. businesses. Now let's move a conversation to the fundraising part of it. Okay. Like, can you think, do, do you have any ideas on that? Like, you know, if you can share your, just in general, like the fundraising and legal part of it on that as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fundraising is, uh, is obviously a, a critical part of any business's journey, right? So um, there are uh, different types of fundraising. So mm -hmm. if, again, sticking with the, with the startup context, um, the first decision you're going to have to make is, do I fundraise using uh, what we call convertible instruments, right? So that could be a convertible note, it could be a, a SAFE, which stands for Simple Agreement for Future Equity. Um, there's other names, uh, KISS, Keep It Simple Security is another one, but they're all kind of the same thing. Uh, or you can do uh, what we call an equity funding round, mm -hmm. equity finance, which is where you actually sell shares to your um, uh, investors at a fixed valuation and you bring them onto your cap table and they become shareholders right there. So uh, there are pros and cons to each. I'll describe a little bit about each process uh, in a second. But in a nutshell, if you're early stage, if this is your first funding, if this is your seed funding as we call it, uh, you're probably thinking about, you should be thinking about convertibles and not a full equity funding round. So in a convertible, and the most common one these days, uh, I would say it would be a safe. What you do is you, you, uh, you get some money from the investor uh, and you promise that investor that you will convert that investment amount into shares and give them shares in return, but in the future, not now. Okay. Uh, so it could be two years from now after you've had a chance to build up the business using this funding. Um, and in return for them, you know, waiting that for that time period and also for, you know, taking more of a risk on you earlier on in your journey and also for the fact that they are holding a contract as opposed to shares, all of these involve extra risk. You would give them um, a discount to the valuation that you're going to establish when you do do your, your full equity funding round in the future. Typically 20%, but it can be, it can be anything. Um, and you might also give them what we call a valuation cap, which is to say, you know, I'll give you 20% of a discount to my valuation in the future when I'm converting you into shares up to a maximum of $5 million, whatever. Right? Uh, and that's just in case that things goes phenomenally well and you're sharing more of the upside with that investor. Right? Um, so maybe you're raising an evaluation of 10 million. Great. Then they would still be at five, which is a 50% discount as opposed mm -hmm. to a 20 but if you're raising at five then they'll take a 20 percent discount to that five which is four million so mm -hmm. what, whatever is lower basically between those two there can be interest rates but they're uh, increasingly rare i would say 
in the market. There can be things like uh, pay me back, which is very dangerous because startups, generally speaking, won't have the money. The whole point is you're spending it. So we watch out for repayment. There should be no repayment. It should just be, um, you know, they take risk with you and hopefully you get to the next level and raise more funds and then they get their shares. And if not, in case of a safe, then nothing happens. They just get nothing back. Um, uh, or it could be that you say after a few years, if nothing happens, I'll still give you some shares. But that has its own complications because then you haven't done a round and you haven't, you don't know, uh, you, you haven't had a proper process to establish your valuation and governance terms for your investors. So broadly speaking, that though that's what convertibles are, and they are, you know, we'll contrast them against the funding round now, but they are much much quicker. You know, you're talking about there should be no reason why you can't do it in a week or two. Pretty standard documents. Um, versus a process that could take three months plus six months, really seven months. Fast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also in terms of cost, it could cost you nothing because again, they're standard templates. Um, there's things that you can generate, you know, online. Uh, if I may, I'd say on Clara as well. It's mm -hmm. one of the things that we generate. Um, or you could go to a lawyer and just spend a couple of hours. You know, so you're spending a thousand or two thousand you know, dollars maybe with the lawyer. Whereas for an equity funding round, it'd be ten times that easily. <laughs> Um, so just briefly on the equity funding okay. round, so now you see what a convertible looks like. If you're going to do it using uh, equity, mm -hmm. so you have a fixed valuation, so there isn't this, let's see what happens in the future. Mm -hmm. You're actually fixing your valuation immediately uh, today. Um, uh, so uh, that's so that is actually one of the elements I didn't mention in convertibles, is you are avoiding that discussion on valuation to a later date, which if you're a super early stage startup makes a lot of sense because you probably don't have enough metrics to to, to formulate a valuation that makes sense, right? Um, so if you're a bit more mature, you, you have a fixed valuation, you have a negotiation with a professional investor, let's say like a VC, come up with a valuation of, uh, of the value of the business today. Um, and then you would be selling shares to that investor at that valuation for any number of investors, it could be more than one. Uh, and you will be doing a number of things at the same time. You have to put in place a subscription agreement. So going back to the time and cost, uh, where it's a document that says, I'm selling you this many shares, you're giving me this much uh, investment amount. It's, it also goes through uh, conditions to the investment. Mm -hmm. So investors will do something called due diligence, where basically it's, they're doing their homework make sure there's nothing wrong. Uh, people often forget that professional investors uh, also have their own investors. It's typically not their money. So they have duties to those investors, they gotta do their homework, they gotta review your business, review your contracts, review your licenses, number of legal, financial, and technical matters that they will, they will review. Um, and there might be conditions because they found something that needs to be fixed you know, a license that's expired, or maybe you, you do need a license for what you're doing and you didn't get it, or whatever it is, right? Um, so it goes through those conditions, it goes through some closing mechanics, on this day I'm going to sign this, I'll do the wire, give me the share certificate, you'll appoint somebody to the board, whatever it is. Um, and then it also goes through warranties, which are statements that you give as a business owner to say everything's okay with the business. Yeah. Oversimplifying, obviously, so we... There are no disputes. Uh, all my licenses are up to date. I don't have any issues with my employees, etc., etc. Um, obviously, some of those statements might not be true, but you can 
disclose against those statements, what we call it, where you'd say, by the way, you know, I said there are no disputes, but here's a case that I have, or, you know, I said I don't have any issues with employees, this employee, there's, there's some sort of dispute with them. Yeah. So, you, so this process kind of is information discovery, mm-hmm. and it's also limitation of liability. Mm-hmm. So all of that has to go into that document, we sign it, and then you also have a shareholders agreement, which is, uh, you know, we talked about the founders agreement earlier and the shareholders agreement, that's your governance document. But unlike when it's just you and your business partners, it's a much more complicated document because you've got external investors. Mm-hmm. So you're gonna have, again, governance, share transfer restrictions, lockups, vesting terms, tags, drags, rights of first refusal, mm-hmm. preemption rights, lots of terms, mm-hmm. a lot of time to, to go through all of it. Uh, but just stuff around what you can and can't do with your shares and how, mm-hmm. and then how you run the business, who's on the board, uh, and who has a veto on the decision. So your investors are gonna have vetoes on a number of you know important material decisions, both at board level and at shareholder level. So you're fully in control of the business usually, you own the majority, you can do everything except for these 10 things at board level, these seven things at shareholder level. So just be aware of those. That's gonna be one of the most highly negotiated parts. Um, And then there's also gonna be some economic value type terms in there. So uh, uh, things called preferred rights for the the shares. You typically are gonna be giving preferred shares if you're in, again, in a startup VC context. Uh, so liquidation preference, anti-dilution, conversion rights, um, quite quite technical stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to dive in, uh, uh, in into a few of those um, if you like. But the important takeaway is the control terms, you know, governance. Mm-hmm. There'll be share transfer provisions, and there'll be preferred investor rights. Yes. Uh, right. Um, so all of that, and then these are hundreds of pages, you know, SHA could be 100 pages, 80 pages, subscription agreement could be 50 pages, 80 pages. Um, you probably do a term sheet first before any of those two, just to set up the summary of the terms. You also have your articles of association. So going back to that structure, we said you have a holding company. The articles of the holding company, they may have been some basic model ones, but when you do a fundraising, you have to amend them typically to reflect all of these things that we said about in the shareholders agreement. Mm-hmm. So that's something else you have to uh, do at the time. And then you got to do KYC on your investors. Mm-hmm. So don't forget about that. And that could take a long time. Mm-hmm. You're going to do the filings in wherever the jurisdiction is. Issue the new shares. You're creating a new class of shares. You're changing your board. So you see it's a really, really big process. When you add in the due diligence that we talked about, the conditions you have to satisfy, it could be anywhere from two, three months to I've seen it go six months beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, now. It's all the negative. On the positive side, you can raise a lot more money usually with the equity funding round, right? Like there's a limit to how much you're going to raise with a convertible, right? Um, at some point, they'd be like, well, if you need that much money, you're mature enough to do a full round. Mm-hmm. And this is too high risk. So I, I need my investor rights. I need my shares. I need my SHA. Mm-hmm. So if you're in that situation, then you can, you can be raising significant amounts of money. If you're trying to raise $10 million, you're probably not doing it through a convertible. If you're trying to raise 500, maybe a million, you, you probably can do it through a, through a, through a convertible. Um, so yeah, just kind of summarize, two, these are the two main ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are other things, there's debt, of course, there's venture debt, there are bank loans, I'm not going to get into that. Yeah. Uh, convertibles or equity rounds, mm-hmm. convertibles, smaller amounts, your first fundraisings, quick, cheap, efficient. Don't have to worry about valuation right now, but you'll give away a discount and a valuation cap. 
equity round, more complicated, more expensive, more time consuming, but that's the one that you raise the big money uh, later on when you're ready. And that establishes your valuation for the first time. Yes. So now we have dynamic different raising part of it. Mm-hmm. One of the key points that come up again and again is ESOP. Because an early stage company is so you don't have enough money to pay every employee the fair market value. So introduce an ESOP. Yeah. So try to make them stick longer with you and actually bring more value to everyone. Yeah. So can you please talk about ESOP as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, ESOP is a, a key tool in the arsenal of, of startups. Um, you know, there, we typically say there's three reasons why or three purposes behind having an ESOP. Okay. Um, it's to uh, attract, align, and retain. Okay. Okay. So the attract part we mentioned, how am I going to attract the talent that I need when I can't pay them as much as your, your big corporates, your traditional businesses? Yeah. Um, so the way I'm going to do that is by offering them equity, something that those traditional businesses cannot offer. Uh, but also, you're also competing against other startups, other people. They all have ESOPs. They're all offering it. So you have to offer it as well, or else you're not, you're not going to be offering market terms. So that's the attract bit. Um, after you've attracted them, the fact that they have ESOP means that they can feel that they own a part of the business, which gives them an owner mentality. So it aligns their interests with your interests as a business owner. So they're not just checking in, checking out, doing the nine to five. They will feel a bit more invested and go that extra mile because their economic interests, or at least part of their economic interests, are aligned with yours. Increasing the value of the business, getting an exit, getting a liquidity event at some point. So that's the aligned part. And then retain, because in an ESOP, go into into the specifics of the terms, but there's something called vesting. Okay, Mm -hmm. So when you give somebody ESOP uh, shares, you're not giving them all the shares up front. You typically say they will vest over a period of time. Um, Let's say four years is a common one. So they are then motivated to stay longer so that they can earn the full allocation of ESOP. Uh, if they leave earlier than that period, then they lose a prorata amount of that uh, that vesting. Mm. Uh, so that's just kind of a way of intro why you want an ESOP. Mm. Attract employees, align their mentality, and keep them there. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of different ways you can do ESOP. The traditional classic ESOP involves actually issuing shares, like you would give them options and then they would turn it to shares. But there's also something called Phantom plan or phantom ESO, where what you do is you give them a contractual right to proceeds that's equivalent to what they would have had had you given them the shares, but without actually needing to issue the shares. Okay. So it'd be like if I if I do an exit, I will pay you, you know, uh, uh, as if you held a thousand shares instead of me giving you any software thousand. What, that removes a lot of admin, a lot of hassle, a lot of costs. You don't need to do filings. They don't give them share certificates. Um, it's a lot easier to administer, uh, uh, but it's a contractual right versus a slightly more kind of stronger right, a constitutional right, if you're holding the actual shares. Uh, so some people might view it as a bit riskier. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also, I think, an emotional thing about holding real shares. Mm-hmm. Right, it just kind of feels, and if you're trying to motivate people, then I guess the feeling, the psychology of it is just as important. Um, even though on paper, you know, the phantom has a lot of advantages. Um, so that's kind of in terms just broad, broadly the types of structures. Um, the, I mentioned vesting, really important. You know, if you're going to have an ESOP in place, you, you have to have vesting. 
Um, uh, typically, it's four years, but you could do it whatever time period makes sense. It's rare to see more than four. Probably doesn't make sense less than two, uh, somewhere in there. Um, other than that, there's something we call a cliff period, which is to say, let's say it is four-year vesting, but you know, equity is a big thing. You know, you don't want somebody to be on your cap table and to have equity unless you're really sure they've contributed. So you'd say, uh, the first year nothing vests. Let's let's call a twelve-year, twelve-month cliff. Uh, so if you leave eleven months and you know five days, you get nothing. Uh, it's like a probation period. You know, now that you've done a full year, you know, you've earned the right to start getting some shares. And then after that is the vesting frequency. So now we've got three more years. Are things going to vest every month, every quarter, or every year? The more frequent, the better for the employee. The less frequent, the better for the company because there's more chance of them losing shares if they've got a long frequency. Um, uh, so just to kind of, by way of example, a classic vesting schedule would be four years with a 12-month cliff and uh, quarterly vesting. So that would mean that if I were to give you a thousand shares, year one, you get nothing. At the end of the year one, you get a full quarter right away. So you get 250 shares. And then the remaining 750 will vest every three months over the remaining three years. Um, so that's that's kind of broadly speaking um, what vesting is. Uh, very important to have everything in writing again. You need to adopt the plan. Because people will be in an email and an offer letter, right? I'll give you this. We had a chat, I promise. Forget about all that. Get it down, black and white, in writing. Another really important tip, don't talk percentages in the documents. It's fine to talk percentages. In the beginning, because people understand percentage, I mean, what's a thousand shares? What does that mean, right? What's a hundred shares or a million shares? Um, so it's fine to give them an indication, like, by the way, the options that I'm giving you today, they're worth 2%. That's fine. But as far as the contract is concerned, you have to convert that 2% into 2,000 shares or whatever it is, depending on your share capital. Because the percentages are always going to change, right? You're going to be doing fundraising, you're going to be issuing more shares, you're going to be giving more ESOP to other people. The percentage is probably going to go down for everybody. Uh, so people you know, shouldn't think, I have 2% of the company. They should be thinking, I have 2% today, and that will get diluted. But the value is hopefully going up because the valuation of the business is growing a lot faster than the dilution. Uh, so that's just kind of one one trap that people fall into. They fixate over the percentage, and that trips them up later when it turns out what they have is not that, not that percentage. Right? Um, so another thing for ESOP is that it's not just for employees. I mean, the, the term is a bit misleading. It's not really an employee share option plan ESOP. It's you can give it to advisors, you can give it to consultants, you know, other non-employee team members or contributors to your to your business and to your dream sometimes board members, um, sometimes even the founders themselves have additional shares in the ESOP. So I would just think of it as a general tool for, uh, for those three pillars, uh, you know, attracting, aligning and retaining or any team member mm-hmm. or, you know, that, that, that might be involved in your business. Um, and a, fi- a final point is it just be aware of potential tax consequences for ESOP. It's not a big deal in the UAE. There's no, uh, there are no, uh, for now, personal income taxes, right? So, um, but other jurisdictions, depending on where the team member is living, there might be 
tax consequences and there might be different ways that you have to structure the plan and the grant of the options to minimize those tax consequences. So I'll just say get, get advice on that if, you, if you're unsure. I think especially in new UA market, right? Because people come and go so fast, mm -hmm. becomes extremely more important as well, right? Because people come over here for higher pay. Yeah. But as an early stage company, you have everything except higher pay for the employee. I think those differences signing up earlier than you would yeah. do traditionally not becomes kind of an important over factor over here. Don't you think that? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And and also just to make sure you got the right type of employee or, or team member. If they just want the highest amount of cash at the end of the month, then they're probably not in the right mentality to be working for an early stage startup. Right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, but if they're willing to take that risk with you, that alignment we talked about, um, then that that then you know, then that's a good sign if that they're going to be a cultural fit. Uh, you're actually right. UAE attracts not just a lot of people, but a lot of different types of people. Yeah. Um, uh, so it, it's it's. On the one hand, one way to improve the value of your package, and on the other hand, it's also a way to uh, kind of weed out inappropriate candidates yeah. or mismatch in, in objectives or culture. Now let's come on technology part, the legal part of it. Sure. Like you know, you have experience in like in legal department, right? Yep. So you have seen the traditional way it actually works. And now with clients, more tech-driven as well. Yes. So can you talk about the change that happened over the course of time? Yeah, I mean, the change has been um, quite dramatic. I'd say the legal industry is probably uh, one of the more traditional change-averse industries, historically speaking. Um, it's one of the last bastions, the old way of doing things. Um, but to to the credit of the industry, that, that has shifted phenomenally in the last 10 years, I would say. And then, you know, we're probably going through another big shift now in the last year or so. Um, there's the, the, the first shift, I'd say, is kind of just digitalization, doing a lot more and feeling comfortable to do a lot more digitally versus, you know, on paper, right? Whether it's virtual signing instead of wedding signing, uh, you know, just generally speaking, bringing in all that information online was, was kind of step step one. Um, step two is kind of the comfort to use tools, particularly third-party tools, right, to help with some of these things. There are tools that help you review contracts and tools that help you uh, uh, manage your practice and deal with clients and manage your files, right? Um, uh, and we saw during COVID the more comfort using video conferencing yeah. You know, uh, not having to travel, not having to be in the same room. So these are all kind of little steps towards um, shifting towards a more, more, a more tech-forward or tech-enabled um, uh, industry. Um, and it, it was really more about today. It's really been more about driving efficiencies, yeah. both for the lawyers, whether they're in-house in a legal department or in private practice in a law firm. And the uh, and for their customers or their clients, right? Uh, so rem removing some of these manual processes, um, uh, allowing for some more interesting access, better visualized data, mm. right? Uh, for your engagement or for your for your contract, uh, allowing for better real time collaboration. So that's back to the the, the digital collaboration tools or the um, uh, video conferencing. All the way down to like one of the most annoying things used to be getting documents notarized 
uh, where you'd have to get an appointment, physically go somewhere, sometimes to see you, drop your passport, and they, they notarize the document now. In, in a bunch of jurisdictions, including in a bunch in the UAE, um, you can do all of that uh, completely digitally. You can just do like schedule a video call, two minutes, mm. put your passport up to the camera and get your digitally notarized document with a QR code that uh, you know the end user can, can, can scan and, and, and verify. Um, and then of course the last big one is AI. Who's yeah. if you want to get into that, that's a yeah. whole other part of, of the digitization. That's the next question. Okay. Let's, 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 let's get into AI because yeah. it's everywhere now. Yes. And every industry have seen some change. And you know, I mean, I'm extremely curious myself. Yeah. How do you think that AI will be playing across this thing? Yeah, it will. I mean, it is and it, and it will. Um, AI is a bit of a, a emotionally charged term and it's different things to different people. But, you know, I think the AI that we're seeing now, uh, super impressive as it is, it's, it's, it's really just like a brute force, supercharged um, combination of, you know, what used to be like OCR, you know, like... Uh, text recognition and natural language processing you know the ability to chat in a natural language uh, and 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 and, um, and 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 just access to uh, words of, of the language and being able to put them in the right order I mean, that that's basically uh, AI but what's what's really changed chat GPT and everything is that you kind of have an off-the-shelf tool that's very accessible to anybody that did some of the stuff that was already there few years back but you had to build it custom you had to mm-hmm. get your own servers or use cloud servers or whatever now off the shelf you've got an access to quite a powerful tool tool that can search the internet or search your own private data sets which is very important um, you know parse them like an OCR would be and, and spit them back out at you in natural language right mm-hmm. um, and what, what that allows you to do is it allows you to essentially just automate uh, you know a big 80 percent of, of the time would have taken you to do something yourself and you know unfortunately it does you know part of the worry that is true is it probably will and has started automating a few jobs that are you know uh, i would say lower end or, or lower part of the value chain you know, research or just like basic copywriting or basic uh, you've got ai now that helps you knock off a presentation or do some basic design or whatever it is, right? So that basic stuff, if you needed a senior person with three junior people with them to do it, maybe you only need one junior person with the same senior person and that senior person can do it, you know, 80% less time. Um, but it, it's ultimately still just a tool. Yeah. It's not, it cannot really fully replace anything. It's just all about those efficiencies, yeah. you know, changing the, the shape of organizations from a pyramid to more like a rocket, as they say in the innovation industry. So much fewer people needed, unfortunately, and less opportunities for training for, for people who are more junior. Okay. Uh, but good news for entrepreneurs and early stage startups that they've got access to what would have been, let's say, a big team yeah. with a much lower team um, in legal industry or in any industry. Uh, that's, that's, that's the case. Lawyers specifically, I think it's mostly... Um, uh, useful for uh, producing content, uh, uh, research, uh, and, and maybe, I, just, I hate to say it, but yes, knocking up first drafts of certain things, you know, basic things, emails, letters, whatever, but absolutely with a significant amount of oversight, editing, amending. But it's just like getting a first draft from an, uh, a slightly a less experienced junior. It's kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so, and it's, it's, it becomes about, this is generally already uh, what, what lawyers are really good about, it's, it becomes about not knowing the answers anymore because everybody has access to all the answers anyway you had before through like search engines. It becomes a lot more about asking the right questions, right? So that's why I see ChatGPT prompt engineers being like a whole new career now. Just just do that, like just figuring out how to craft the right questions to get the information is is, is actually going to be a, a key skill set that we all are going to so like just to focus on those ads, basically it's not replacing anyone, it's just basically improving the productivity yeah. and delivering results faster than before. Yeah. And with more ad kids, with some ad aspects or like not those ad? Well, um, so first of all, I think it will be replacing some people. Which okay, <laughs> sure. So, yeah. but not everybody by all means. And, you know, hopefully they can reskill and retool and do other things. But there definitely is an element of replacing people or delaying their hiring because you can do some of the things that, yeah, you needed their support for yeah. without them, as long as there's still some other experienced human that's doing them, right? So it's yeah. certainly not replacing an entire function ever, yeah. but it reduces the number of people you need in it. Okay. Um, in terms of accuracy, I mean, it's, it's yeah, it, it, we all know all of the stories about, you know, the, the AI hallucinations and, and inaccuracies and things like that. Yeah, it's definitely not 100% accurate. I don't know what the percentage is, but it's, it's like any tool it's for you it's kind of how you use it um but yes i think you we are going to see a lot of i actually think we're going to see a lot of inaccuracies because a lot of people are going to use it lazily <laughs> yeah. and just that volume yeah. i already i don't know if you know i already noticed a bunch of uh, posts on linkedin and content that's gone out there on like this is clearly chat gpt and it's clearly like unchecked chat gpt <laughs> right he just has a style and a way of speaking actually uh, uh so but 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 supremely powerful accurate enough if there is somebody at the end you know a human in the loop that mm -hmm. does the job of taking that last mile mm -hmm. you know that last 20 percent that's where the human mind and the value really is but all the the base before that uh, it can it can produce yeah. thank you so much for your time yeah my pleasure uh, and it was lovely to chat to you more about because legal has always been a very i'd say very scary in some areas, you know, <laughs> yes. uh, as a lot of people think it's something to be scared of or to yeah. be confused of. Yeah. I think yeah. I mean, just to understand, be more open-minded as a founders as well. I think yeah. you can go extra mile, but it's not scary if you have an open mind for that. Yeah, and it's just about knowing uh, the the scope of the problem. I mean, we spoke about a whole bunch of stuff, and so I'm sure there's more questions than answers, but if it just prompts you to think, okay, yeah, now I know where the issues are. I can go and uh, figure them out. And it could be speak to a lawyer. It could be just speak to your, you know, friends, uh, fellow founders. You know, people have gone through this before. That's your best resource. Yeah. But yeah, please don't be scared to talk to yeah. lawyers. Just talk to the right lawyers. Yeah. Uh, make sure they're suited for your situation before you do. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time as well. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. You.